Turn to John chapter 8. Some of, most of you are probably already there. <laughs> I'm going to read verses 48 to 59. <clears throat> John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old and have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray one more time. Father, please give us what we need today. As we just prayed in that song, that you would speak to us. Would you speak through your word? I must decrease, but Christ must increase. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> last week, so this is kind of a, a part two of this section. Um, and last week I began by telling you a, a particular story about Elvis. Um, and I also dropped a name in the middle of that that you probably have heard of, maybe, but you might not understand the significance of the name that I dropped. So here's what I said last week. I, I said this, made this sentence, this quote. I said, many are perfectly happy to have Jesus, who's merely a wise teacher, right up there with the Hindu yogi, Norman Vincent Peale, and Confucius. Norman Vincent Peale, that's the name that I dropped that some of you probably have heard of, but maybe you don't remember why. He was an ordained Methodist minister. He was the founder of Guideposts magazine. Um, he was a syndicated radio preacher and author of many books, his most famous being The Power of Positive Thinking. He also graduated from Bell Fountain High School. Listen to what uh, Tim Challies, who has an incredibly helpful website, he has this to say about Norman Vincent Peale. He said that the Peale popularized what came to be known as positive thinking. He took existing ideas from Christian science and other inspirations, gave them a biblical veneer, integrated them with psychology, and packaged them for the masses, spreading his message through that book, The Power of Positive Thinking, and his other works. He says his foremost contribution to the world was this notion that thoughts are causative, that our thoughts can change our lives, our health, our destiny. Readers were thrilled with this notion that if they believed it, they could have it or be it or do it. 
probably the most uh, famous disciple of Norman Vincent Peale is Oprah. Peale believed that we live in a world that is mental more than it is physical. And this allows our thoughts to be determinative. If this was the case, all that stands between us and our desires is properly controlling our thoughts. In one of his books, he taught the importance of a form of mental activity called imaging. He called it imaging. Imaging consists of vividly picturing in your, in your conscious mind a desired goal or objective and holding that image until it sinks deep into your unconscious mind where it releases great untapped energies. It works best when it's combined with a strong religious faith, when it's backed by prayer and Uh, Challies writes, the seemingly illogical technique of giving thanks for benefits before they're received. When the imaging concept is applied steadily and systematically, it solves problems, strengthens personalities, improves health, and greatly enhances the chances for success in any kind of endeavor, Peel taught. None of this would be remarkable, except he taught this as a minister who claimed to be a Christian. Yet as a Christian minister... He even denied that God was a being. He said this. He said, who is God? Some theological being? He is so much greater than theology. God is vitality. God is life. God is energy. As you breathe God in, as you visualize his energy, you will be re-energized. As the Mayatsi brothers would say, bogus. As a Christian minister, he once said to Phil Donahue, remember Phil Donahue? He said this, it's not necessary to be born again. You have your way to God, I have mine. I I found eternal peace in a Shinto shrine. I've been to Shinto shrines and God is everywhere. Christ is one of the ways. God is everywhere. He denied the very heart of the Christian faith and and he replaced it with his power of positive thinking. So, as I said, many people are perfectly happy to have a Jesus who is merely a wise teacher, right up there with the Hindu yogi, Norman Vincent Peale, or Confucius, or name your wise teacher from history. But Jesus is not content with that. He doesn't leave that option open to us. In fact, in today's passage, Jesus claims outright to be the great I Am. He claims, in fact, to be God the Son. So again, as I said last week, and I want to reiterate this, I want you to to listen to how God describes himself. This is how the Lord describes himself in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Again, these are God's own words describing himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh, or Jehovah, Jehovah, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Those are God's words describing himself. God is a personal being. He's not an energy. He's not a force. He is the the three in one. That description there in Exodus 34, it's not simply even of God the Father, 
but of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. God the three in one. And until we understand these things, until we understand that G- who Jesus is in relation to the Father, we can't understand who Jesus is at all. So last week, as we were looking at this passage, we really just got into verse 48. But I read through all of John chapter 8. Well, we started in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. We read through this whole kind of interaction here with these um, Pharisees, the the Jews here. And I'm not going to read it all again, but I want you to notice where he begins, where Jesus begins, and where Jesus ends in this account. Namely, with those words, I am. So in, in verse 12, John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then John kind of finishes out this portion, finishes out this chapter by quoting Jesus in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then we, and I mentioned this last week, and I just want to bring it to your attention again as we read through these, this chapter, this account. Pay careful attention to this escalating conflict that continues to develop between Jesus and the Jews, the Pharisees, the religious leadership. And it's clear just from the last two verses of chapter 8 that the conflict is directly tied to this I am, to Jesus uttering those words, making this claim. Throughout the chapter as the tensions escalate here, Jesus tells these religious leaders that they don't even know who God is. Because they don't know who Jesus is. They don't even know who God is because they don't know who Jesus is. And their response, uh, every question, every statement, every exclamation uh, that they, uh, every response that they give him is really made through gritted teeth until they finally pick up rocks to stone him there at the end of the chapter, attempt to. Their response was to abuse and to even attempt to kill the Christ, the Savior their Messiah. And so last week we saw the first of four certainties, four certain truths that we need to hold on to as we worship Jesus Christ as our Lord. And of course that first certainty was the abuse of Christ. And the abuse of Christ will most certainly lead to the abuse of the Christian. But the lies of our enemies have no power in heaven. The lies of our enemies the lies of the enemy, has no power in heaven. So take heart. This is where we left off last week. This is point two of a two-part sermon, I guess. The promises of Christ are even more certain. So last week, the abuse of Christ is certain, and right now as we pick this up, the promises of Christ are even more certain. The promises of Christ are certain. Let's pick up this conflict again, beginning in verse 49. With Jesus' response, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father. You dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Again, even in their response there, in verses 52 and even in 53, they're abusing him through mockery and taunting. They're getting themselves worked up. 
But even before they say those words, starting in verse 52, this second response, Jesus quietly answers their accusation that he was a demon-possessed Samaritan. And he does so in in a way that kind of takes the focus off of his earthly parents and puts it on his heavenly father. Do you see that? Do you see that in his response? So we saw it last week that when they accuse him in verse 48 of being a Samaritan, they're using this as a racial slur to cause the crowd to believe that maybe, maybe his father wasn't Joseph. Of course, we know the truth of this. But they're causing this crowd to think maybe his father isn't Joseph, but just some Samaritan. Maybe his mother isn't the the, the, um, pillar of virtue that she seems to be. Maybe she has a reputation. And it looks as though Jesus doesn't even address this, this charge. But he does, because his father wasn't Joseph. A fact that he's been stating all through these last few chapters especially. Let's draw a connection here. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul writes what what really could be the the thesis statement for the book of Romans, and really uh, uh, kind of Paul's life verse, as it were. Um, He writes this, so Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, I am not ashamed, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But then Paul goes on in the very next verse to say this. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then Paul, in Romans chapter 1, these next couple of verses, 19 and 20, uh, he writes a bit about God's attributes, which is that plain truth of God that evil men suppress. And then we read this. This is Romans 1, 21. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Does that not sound like these Pharisees? Does that not sound like, like these men? Jesus says to them, I don't, have a, I don't have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. They dishonor him by calling him a Samaritan. They dishonor him by attributing his works to the devil. They knew God. He's standing right there in front of him. There was one right there. Who, who, there was no one there. There was no one there who didn't know who Jesus claimed to be. It's clear by the end of this when they pick up rocks to stone him. They knew what he was saying. They all knew of his signs and wonders. A few chapters ago, thousands of people chased him across the Sea of Galilee because of the feedings feeding of the 5,000. They'd heard of and seen his miraculous healings. He's going to do it again in chapter 9. They knew of his signs and wonders. They knew what he was teaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
They'd heard his claims, yet they did not honor him as God. And they certainly didn't give thanks to him. But instead, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they continued to accuse him of having a demon. Now, this is the first time that John mentions this specific accusation that you have a demon. But the other Gospels all make it clear that this is actually a common accusation. In fact, maybe you've heard part of Jesus' reply to this type of charge before. Um, In one instance, in Mark chapter 3, which is probably something that happened before this in John chapter 8. So in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 25, we read this. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons, speaking of Jesus. And he called them to him and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But here he just kind of quietly, here in John chapter 8, he just kind of quietly answers their accusations. This is another time they're accusing him of being a demon. He says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. His claims and his behavior, his preaching and his miracles are not, as as D.A. Carson says, the result of arrogance or some kind of Messiah complex. They're not the result of dementia. He's not crazy. He's not, this, this isn't even a, a, a Samaritanism, which was a, a kind of a blending of religions. This isn't the occult. He's simply obeying his heavenly Father. And that's what they're seeing here. And by continuing to say and do the things that the Father gives him to say and do, Jesus honors the Father and the Father seeks to glorify the Son. And by adamantly rejecting him, the Pharisees dishonor him because they're futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. And there are warnings here in these promises. And there are promises in the warnings. Think of even in uh, Isaiah 28 that we read earlier, I hope that you heard, uh, even though it's hard to understand, I hope that you heard sounds of Christ in that promise and even in the judgment. There are promises in the warnings and there are warnings in the promises. Think of Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. The psalmist writes, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There are promises in the warnings. And there are warnings in the promises. Think of these promises of Christ. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. See that? That truly, truly, that verily, verily, the King James says. Jesus is saying, pay attention. He's saying, sit up straight, listen up. This is as good as done. I promise, I'm telling you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is the flip side truth of verse 34. 34 says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the idea is, 
that you, you, you see sin and death all consuming you. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That sin and death is all-consuming. The taste of death, as the, as the Pharisees even put it in the next verse, the taste of death is in your mouth all the time. The psalmist would say it like this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my My tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. But Jesus promises, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. These words don't mean that we will not go to the grave. We understand that. One day, I might be the one to preach your funeral. These words mean that we will not drink of the cup of the wrath of God. That's what it means. And if anything tastes like death, it's the cup of the wrath of God. In fact, that psalm that I just quoted, Jesus quoted it on the cross. As he was facing the wrath of God for your sin. See, that's from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then a few verses later, You lay me in the dust of death. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. But because of the cross, because Jesus went there for us, the sting of death is removed for the true believer, for the Christian. This is the promise of 1 Corinthians 15. Turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a long chapter. It's an important chapter. And Paul begins just in the first couple of verses, and he... So 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now here is the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all of the apostles, and last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And jump down to verse 50, he talks a lot about resurrection. And in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15, we read this. Listen to this promise. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a a promise that is guaranteed by Christ's own shed blood. This is the promise of the new covenant. This is what we are reminded of every time we we partake in the Lord's Supper, every time we come to the table. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The bread and the cup, they're physical, tangible. We We can see them, we can taste them, we can feel them. They're physical, tangible reminders and and the proclamation that this promise is truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Yeah, amen. Bishop J.C. Ryle, he said this, his flesh may fail and his bones may be racked with strong pain, but the bitter sense of unpardoned sins shall not crush him down. Some of us feel like that. Our flesh is failing. Our bones may be racked with strong pain, but the bitter sense of unpardoned sins shall not crush us down. Listen again to the promises of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. I read this last week, but we need to read this often. For to this you have been called. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That phrase, live to righteousness. That means what James says. A faith without works is dead. And it means that these promises are for all who believe in Christ, all who receive him as Christ, all who repent of their sins and trust in him. These promises are for all who trust and obey, not simply in just word and deed, but in spirit and in truth, in life. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The promises of Christ are certain. The promises of Christ are certain. And while the Jews here continue to reject him, while they continue to mock his promises and completely miss and and twist his teaching, he continues to teach. And in response to their, their taunting, who do you think you are? He speaks of the glory found in the knowledge of Christ. This is the certainties of the knowledge of Christ. Now bear with me on this one. Look at verse, so we're back in John 8, verses 54, 5, and 6. Well, in 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? 
Jesus answered, verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's important to understand that Jesus responds like this, explaining that the Father glorifies the Son. He he says this as a response to that accusation. Who do you make yourself out to be? Or who do you think you are? Because underneath that question, underneath that accusation is their real question, which is, are you saying you're God? Are you making yourself out to be God? And so Jesus answers them by saying this, the Father, the God that you claim, he's the one who glorifies me. Now we need to be kind of really theologically precise here because Jesus is not saying the Father made me God because that's not true. The opening verses of John's gospel clearly tell us that Jesus has always been Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we understand that Jesus was not made God. In fact, Christians of all kinds of, of different denominations and backgrounds have believed for centuries what is summarized in the Nicene Creed. Let me just read the part about Jesus. This was written in, I don't remember, 384 AD or something like that. But it says that as Christians, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. This is what we believe about Jesus Christ. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made. Of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is not saying, I am making myself to be God, or even God made me to be God. He's saying, the Father, the God you claim, is the one who glorifies me. This is what he's been saying all along. But they don't know the Father, and so they reject the Son. Jesus even calls them, once again, liars. I think it's interesting, side note, I think it's interesting, Jesus calls the Pharisees' names a lot. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them sons of the devil. He calls them liars. They are rejecting him. Jesus is saying that the proof that he does know the Father is seen in his obedience, in his keeping of God's word, his obedience to God. He's obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He has submitted himself to the will of the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son and has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. These Pharisees are not submitted to the will of the Father. Listen to what he said back in verse 47. 
Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now compare that to what he says about, uh, about Abraham in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Again, they had claimed to be the sons of Abraham. And they believed that that lineage, that that heritage, that that religious, their religious roots, their, their ethnicity, their religion, their whole identity was enough to save them from sin and death. Well, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced because he knew Christ, because he trusted in the promises of a Savior, a Redeemer for his children. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or the way that Jesus says it here, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Because Abraham knew God. Because Abraham trusted God. And because of that, he could say to Isaac on Mount Moriah, where they had gone to worship, he could say to him, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He believed God. He trusted God. Hebrews chapter 11 actually gives us a little bit more insight into that. It tells us this, Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, the author of Hebrews says, he did receive him back. But to the ears of these unbelieving, unknowing Pharisees, this claim was incredible, unbelievable. Abraham had lived 2,000 years earlier. How did Abraham know Christ? How did Abraham know Jesus? How did Abraham rejoice that he would see Christ's day? When did he see it and was glad? There are three ways to interpret this. Um, some believe, and, and this is pure speculation, so this is sort of extra, but some believe that when God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, that he revealed his specific plans to Abraham. That's possible. God did speak to Abraham in many different times there in Genesis, so it's possible, but it's not likely. Some believe that Abraham was rejoicing in heaven as he saw this plan unfolding. That that's what Jesus means when he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And then it switches to the past tense and says he saw it and was glad. So it's possible that Abraham, along with all of the Old Testament saints, the great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews 11 puts it, that he was rejoicing with the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. There's no reason to doubt that Abraham wasn't rejoicing in heaven at the birth of Christ and the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. But then the third option, and I, I think it's probably a combination of this second and the third the third option, way to understand this, is this. Some believe that when Abraham laughed in Genesis 17, 17, he was rejoicing that one day the Messiah would be born. Abraham, uh, Genesis 17, 17 says this, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, 
Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? Some believe that that laughter was rejoicing. Disbelieving, but believing. I can't believe it, but I believe it. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And I want to bring your attention to the point, um, to the fact that I called this point the certainty of the knowledge of Christ. And then this whole time, I've really spoken of faith. I've spoken of faith as opposed to certainty, uh, belief. But that's because what's the definition of faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Assurance, conviction, knowledge. Abraham rejoiced that he would see. He was assured. He was convicted. He was convinced that he would see the day of Christ and he saw it and was glad. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abraham knew that God would redeem his people. Why? Because he said he would. Because he said he would. But it is to this statement that the Jews took offense. They're not offended, however. I don't know if you noticed this. They're not offended that Abraham rejoiced at the birth of the Messiah. That doesn't offend them. They're offended that Jesus was claiming that Abraham rejoiced in him. That was preposterous to them. This is Abraham rejoiced in you? Unless it's true. And so Jesus proclaims to them the certainty, not just of the abuse of Christ not just of the promises of Christ and the certainty of the knowledge of Christ, but he, but he proclaims to them the certainty of the deity of Christ. The certainty of the deity of Christ. These last couple of verses. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There can be no mistake, and the Jews were not mistaken. Jesus is claiming for himself the name of the Most High God. But not just the name, the very identity. I am. Jesus is saying, I am. I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Redeemer of Israel promised so long ago to Abraham. Promised, as we looked in Sunday school in Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one that humanity has waited for. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is God. He is God the Son sent to save their people from their sin. 
He is God, the everlasting one, from everlasting to everlasting. Before Abraham was, I am the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. And as they slander and mock and pick up stones to kill him, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Before Abraham was, I am. Psalm 103 Uh, Verses 17 to 19 says this. But the steadfast love of the Lord, let me read you what it says. But the steadfast love of I am is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do all of his commandments. I am, the Lord, I am, has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Remember that promise in verse 51? Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, his righteousness is promised. And while their abuse turns from verbal abuse as they hurl insults and mockery and and question him accusations while it turns from that to to attempted violence at least in verse 59 as they pick up rocks this simple statement i am shows the height it shows the depth It shows the length and the breadth of the foundation of our faith. I am. Our Jesus is nothing less than very God of very God. And therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him because he is merciful and gracious, because he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And he has promised, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He has promised, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He has promised, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He has promised, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He has promised, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I'm going to close by praying a prayer. A prayer that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3. Pray this prayer with me. We'll close with this. Paul writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit 
in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And Father, we pray now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.